Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to John. It's John chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Let us apply ourselves to the Word of God as we listen, as He has recorded for us what He wants us to hear, what He wants us to know. Would you follow along as I read? Hear the Word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. This message will stand alone in itself, but it is meant to be inextricably entwined with what has come before it and what will come after it. In chapter 7 this morning, you know, each week, or not every week, but frequently I tell you that I want to teach. It's my goal during the week to so teach and preach from a certain passage that you will not only be able to understand it, but that you would be able to communicate it Let's say your husband is not here. You could go home and say, I can tell you about the first 14 verses of the seventh chapter of John. Or I can tell you, your husband or wife or your children, your parents or your next door neighbor, whatever. I want you to be able not just to walk away saying, now that was a good message. I want you to be able to teach it. I pray that God will so teach us and show us these passages. So this morning, as we come to chapter 7, we're going to look at what actually is taking place. This is one of those passages where it takes a little bit of background in what was happening in that day and what some of these feasts meant. And so we're going to take some time, look at that. It's very, very interesting. And then we'll look at three things that we should take away from this passage. 
but I can't do that. It has to be the Father that teaches it in the power of the Holy Spirit, or we won't get it. So let's do what we usually do. Let's stop and pray and ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as we do every week. When we come to this time, you've called us to be priests. This morning, we again take this time to pray for those around us, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray for our families, pray for people we know and their needs. That's how we function as priests. We don't listen to another priest pray. Father, we ourselves, all of us, if we know you, have been called to be priests, to stand before you for the world around us. Our Father, we thank you for the success of John Summers' bypass surgery. We pray that you would continue to bless in his recovery, that, Father, his health would be much improved from what it was before the surgery. Thus, Bill McCain, his family, his brother, as they grieve the loss of Bill's sister-in-law. Our Father, I pray that death won't have the final word. I pray that you will bring your omnipotent comfort to bear upon this family. Bless Elizabeth Boyd as she cares for mother in Birmingham while she has a broken hip. Bless David Mattingly, Father, that this treatment would bring about a full recovery of his voice. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the life of Phil Halley and how you're restoring speech and his mind and his limbs. Oh, Father, what a treat to just be with him. We pray that you would bless Sally as she cares for him, and we pray that, Father, you would bring healing, even more healing, to fill hour after hour, day after day, week after week. Bless Gail Mayo, Father. Thank you for the success of the process, the surgery that was done with her. And we pray that you would give her clear vision. Bless Sylvia Clarendon, Father. We thank you for her love for you and for her love for Christ's covenant. We pray that you would be with her, and that she might know she's not alone, that, that she meets with us weekly as she listens to the messages. She weeps with us weekly as we pray for her. And as she rejoices in this church, bless Ted and Joyce Johnson. We pray that you would bless them to look forward with anticipation for what you have prepared for us. Our Father, bless the marriages, bless our marriages. Bring healing where healing is needed. Our Father, bless our families where there's division. We pray that, Father, you would bring healing across that division and restore children and parents, children and grandparents and grandchildren. Bless those who hurt this morning, Father, for whatever the reason. You know their names. We pray that you would bring comfort.
Now, as we open your word, our Father, we laugh with anticipation because we've been taught in this place, and you've taught us. It doesn't have to do with John Sartell. It has to do with you and the power of your spirit. We pray that when we leave here, that we will echo just a gigantic amen for what you say this morning. Oh, Father, we're just your children. Adopted by the power of the Holy Spirit into your family. And we pray that you would teach us, Father, we're your children, saying, tell us the story. Tell us the story one more time. Take us deeper, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Jesus chose aloneness, R.C. Sproul would tell his students when he was teaching in seminary that when they came to a passage that they intended to preach, that they should, and I quote him here, look for the drama in the passage. Look for the drama in the passage. Well, you'll not have any trouble finding the drama in this passage in the seventh chapter of John. The entire chapter is filled with drama. It begins with verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. In his drama, when the national leadership of your country is seeking to take your life, that's drama. What else happens in this chapter? Jesus isolates himself from his earthly family. What else happens? At the great feast of tabernacles in Jerusalem, there is a boiling controversy over Jesus. He's a subject of every private whisper and conversation. Where is he and who is he? His name is on everyone's lips. What happens? What else happens in this chapter? An arrest warrant, an arrest warrant is put out in Jerusalem for Jesus. Police are sent to arrest him. What else happens in this chapter? The most significant, at the most significant place and moment in this chapter, at the feast, the most significant moment of the feast, Jesus makes yet another claim to deity in one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible. That's all that happens in this chapter. It's just filled with drama. The chapter begins with Jesus up north. We would say in the boonies of Galilee. Why is Jesus up there? Galilee is his home. He was raised in Nazareth, and now he lives in the city of Capernaum, much larger than Nazareth, on the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. You need to know that Matthew and Mark and Luke center their Gospels on the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, in that northern province where it, that he called home. 
John, on the other hand, centers his gospel on Jesus' ministry in Judea, in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the province of Judea. And that's where John focuses or puts his focus. However, John's making a point here that Jesus is now staying away from Jerusalem. He's now staying away from Judea, and he gives the reason. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, let's stop right there. That is not an anti-Semitic statement. Jesus was a Jew. John, the one who wrote these words, was a Jew. Jesus' disciples were Jewish. Galilee was Jewish. Whether you're in any of the four Gospels, when you read about the anger of the Jews toward Jesus, it's speaking of the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders. The members of the Sanhedrin were seeking to kill him. The Sanhedrin was headquartered in Jerusalem. So, this narrative in chapter 7 begins with a conversation between his brothers and Jesus, between Jesus and his brothers. And you said, whoa, Jesus had brothers. Yes, he did. Some denominations try to protect the perpetual virginity of Mary, saying that she remained a virgin. She had no other children. And they make an attempt to say that this refers to Jesus' cousins. That's not what it says. The Bible is very clear in several passages that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Produced, they were produ they, these children came from the marriage of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. We'll only look at one passage in Matthew 13, 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and he came to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished, and they said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? So, the brothers are having a conversation with Jesus. Now, the, John records that these brothers did not believe. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, what's that mean? I think, from what they say here, that they believed in his miracles. In fact, their advice here is to go up to Jerusalem to do these works that he had been doing in Galilee. They knew of his astounding work. When John states that they did not yet believe, he was saying that they were very much like that crowd in chapter 6. They saw him feed the 5,000, but they saw him as an earthly kind of leader. I think this is what the brothers said. They couldn't deny what he was doing, but they saw him as a kind of earthly leader, an earthly king, someone that would politically do what needed to be done. They did not understand the deity of his being. They might think he's even Messiah. 
But they didn't identify that with deity. They didn't understand his deity. They didn't understand his spiritual mission. But what do they tell Jesus? Look at this. It's interesting. In verse seven, um, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Now the, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They're saying, if you're a Messiah, you need to go up to the center of power in Jerusalem to do these miraculous deeds. And Jesus, there's no better time to go than right now. This is the great feast of tabernacles. Great feast of booths. So they say, not only go to Jerusalem, but go now. Take the opportunity. Go to this feast. Make yourself known. Now, what do you think of when you read, hear the words, the feast of the tabernacle? We think of the tabernacle as a place where the people in Israel worshipped as they traveled through the wilderness. The word tabernacle means tent. It didn't mean a place of worship. It meant tent. It was a tent of worship. It had to be put up and taken down as the people moved through the wilderness. So we'll see in a moment, the word for tabernacle is simply the word tent. So it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents. Now to understand this passage, we need to know that there were three great feasts given by God for Israel to celebrate. The first feast was Passover. You know about Passover. It took place in the spring. It marked the beginning of the barley season. All of these feasts, these three feasts, had an agricultural connotation. They were tied to the agriculture that was taking place. But they were also tied to what was taking place spiritually, either in the past or the future. Well, the Feast of Passover it marked the beginning of the barley season. But it wasn't just that. In this feast, Israel remembered what? The exodus from Egypt. And they put, remember when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts? God passed over those houses that were marked with the blood on the doorpost as he passed through Egypt. The second feast of the year was the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. It took place in the summertime, seven weeks after the Passover. At this feast, the first fruits of the early wheat harvest were brought to the Lord. It was sort of a, a mini Thanksgiving. But the third great feast was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This marked the end of the harvest season. The crops were in. The barns were full. It was a time to celebrate. It was a time to party. Time to give thanks. This feast would have resembled our Thanksgiving. And the people sent up, then this is cool, the people set up tents. It might have been in the, front, in the front of their houses. It might have been beside their houses. It might have been on top of their houses. It might have been out in a park with lots of other people setting up their tents. And they lived in those tents for that week, remembering the sojourn of Israel through the wilderness when they didn't have all these harvests and all these lands, all these farms. 
This was a huge celebration. It rivaled, if not surpassed, in terms of the crowd, Passover. Now, the brothers were right in a way because the booths, the Feast of Booths, did rival the Passover in popularity. Jerusalem would be packed. Jerusalem would be celebrating. They were telling Jesus, go promote yourself. This was a Madison Avenue. Go do, go down to Jerusalem and do what you've been doing up here and win Jerusalem. It's a perfect time. They were thinking just like that crowd in chapter 6. They wanted to make Jesus king. Remember in, because when he fed the 5,000? They sought him out the next day. You've got, to be the, you've got to be our leader. You've got to take over. They had not been hearing what Jesus was demonstrating. They were like the brothers. They did not think about him. They thought about him being the Messiah of Israel. They didn't think about being the God of Israel. They didn't think about deity. They want him to be a popular king on a throne. And that was not his plan. His plan was to go to a Roman cross to die for sin. So that's what the brothers, where their brothers were. That's what was being said. Well, what did Jesus tell them? Look at verses 6 through 9. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about that its works are evil. Go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now that response may seem strange to your ears, but it made perfect sense. He begins by saying, my time has not yet come, and then he repeats it again. He said, there will be a time, it's not yet, but there will be a time for me to go up to Jerusalem. But it's time for you to go up. It's the Feast of Booth, guys. Get yourself up there. They don't hate you like they hate me. They're not after you. It would have been easy for Jesus to laugh with his brothers and say, all right, let's go up together. But he was protecting his brothers. If he had gone up with his brothers and made the splash they were recommending, it was not only his life that would be in danger, it was their lives that would be in danger. Remember there's a time in Jesus' ministry when he turned his face toward Jerusalem and was going up. And what did his disciples say? They first said, Jesus, you know they're going to kill you up there. And he just kept going. And they looked at each other and said, well, let's go die with him. He understood. They understood their lives were in danger. That's what Jesus was saying here by saying, you go on up, but without me. But he was, there was something more happening here. He was following a plan. Jesus wasn't flying by the seat of his pants, making decisions on the go. He was following the plan. He said it in chapter 5. He said it in chapter 6. I I'm doing the commands of my Father. I'm obeying my Father. I'm going by my Father's plan. We've been reminded of that over and over again 
there would come a time, six months from then, six months after this passage, he would go to Jerusalem. He would go up to the Feast of Passover. He was not to die at the Feast of Booths. It was at the Feast of Passover. And he would enter Jerusalem as Zechariah prophesied on the foal of a donkey. And he would be hailed the Messiah. He would be making a public claim. I am the Messiah. He would enter Jerusalem to be the Lamb of God at the Passover. The Lamb of all lambs. He was single-minded in this. So Jesus sent his brothers up to the feast. And then he did what he had planned to do the whole time. He went up to the feast incognito. No brothers were with him. No disciples were with him. He went up alone. And we will see in the coming weeks that he had a plan for this feast. Just at the right time in the feast, he did something astounding. But that's for another message in the near future. This morning, as we've taken in this whole scene now, and we see Jesus walking up alone to Jerusalem, I want us to take away three truths that we've seen as this played, as, it, as we've seen it play out. First, I want you to see that the brothers of unbelief in this passage became the brothers of faith. Look at Acts 1, chapter 12. This is what takes place just after Jesus has ascended to glory. And the disciples return to Jerusalem. Acts 1, 12. Then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The brothers had joined the disciples of Jesus. James, that's mentioned here, or mentioned earlier in Matthew, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. This is not the apostle James. The apostle was martyred early in the book of Acts. Jude, Jesus' younger brother, Judas, wrote the letter of Jude in the New Testament. In John 7, they had not believed what their brother was saying. They had not understood. But with the resurrection, everything changed. They stood shoulder to shoulder with his closest disciples. Stop and think about that for a minute. Very frequently, I must sit with a family that's going through a mess. A mess caused by a broken marriage or by adultery. A mess caused by addiction. A mess caused by cruel parents or rebellious children. 
<laughs> or I have to I have to remind that family that all families now we're prone to look at someone and say well they they don't have messes people there's no family that doesn't have messes every one of us do Jesus had unbelief in his own family but he didn't write his brothers off in exasperation he didn't say you don't understand he said you're going up to Jerusalem and in the end they became brothers of faith now this is not a guarantee that every member of our families will come to the faith it is a reminder that we should not allow sin and Satan in the mess to discourage us to the point that we think well this is unredeemable God can't do anything with this. Oh, this is to remind us that Jesus is the Redeemer. It's a time to look inside of our own lives. Forget the rest of the family. We've made messes in our own lives. And God has been faithful. And Jesus has redeemed us. There was a friend of mine in Kentucky He had a godly, godly mother. She prayed and prayed for him. I did not know him at the time. I didn't know her. Shortly before I went to Kentucky, she had died. When she died, her son was older then, married, had a child, and he had become a Christian. And she had prayed every day throughout her life that this man would become a Christian. And when she died, he hadn't become a Christian. I was talking with him one day, and I said, all right, tell me what happened. I said, you know, something happened that changed you. And he said, watching my mother for two years while she died changed me completely. He said, it was not just that she was confident. It was not just that she didn't complain. He said, she looked forward with sparkling eyes as if she was going somewhere wonderful. He said, watching her convinced me of the reality of Jesus. Since then, he said, I have much more evidence now, but that's what changed me. Think about that. She died praying for a son, and she didn't know that he became a Christian. But she'll greet him one day. She'll greet him in glory. When you think all is lost spiritually with your family, remember the brothers of Jesus. The brothers of unbelief in this passage became brothers of the faith. Secondly, I want you to see sometimes God calls his children to walk through this hostile world judiciously. Now, some of us need to hear this because some of us just have a nature we like to fight. (laughs) 
You know, you say, well, I'm married to someone just like that. Uh, Well, this time, as Jesus goes up to a hostile Jerusalem, he went up judiciously, cautiously, taking certain precautions. He protected his brothers. He protected his disciples. They weren't with him. He avoided the face-to-face confrontation in a large way that would conflict with the Father's will. He would wait till Passover to make the great confrontation. Riding into Jerusalem, just as Zechariah said he would on the foal of a donkey, the people singing Hosanna to him. But not this trip. Often we face the hostility to the world, to Christ, to God's word, to our Christian lives. And we're tempted to really get in the face of the world. To be antagonistic. And there is a time for that. But there's a time that biblical wisdom dictates a quieter and more measured response. Think of those Christians in Nazi Germany who loved Jesus and helped the Jews in Germany secretly to get out of Germany formed underground railroads and as such it was not a time to get in the face of the Nazis they had to do what they did judiciously in secret but they did it being faithful to Jesus you need to know that Martin Luther the great reformer Use this passage in John 7 to reply to those who wanted him to be more confrontational with the political and religious authorities. Now, I've read Luther's history, and I can't imagine him being more confrontational than he was. But he still used this passage, and he wrote this. Listen to it. These are the words of Martin Luther. Notice here that Christ gives danger a wide berth. He did not want to expose himself to danger and to tempt God until he felt obliged to go up and his divine office demanded it. So the brothers of unbelief in this passage became the brothers of faith. Sometimes God calls his children to walk through this hostile world judiciously. And then sometimes we will walk alone in this hostile world. We will walk alone in this hostile world because of our obedience to Christ. Watching Jesus in this passage walk from Galilee to Jerusalem into a den of lions without his family, without his disciples, just by himself. I know what you're thinking because I thought the same thing. I would love to have been there. I'll walk with you, Jesus. There's a pathos, there's a sadness, but there's also a powerful, powerful resolve. There was a point in my life when I was making a decision that would seriously alter the rest of my ministry. I was making a decision about leaving the Presbyterian denomination in which I had been raised, to which I belonged. The denomination for several decades had been descending into gross unbelief. 
theological unbelief. I believed with all my heart that Scripture was saying I was obligated to leave. That I was under conviction that I should leave just from Scripture. Most of my friends did not hold my position. In my own family, my older brother was in the ministry. My brother-in-law was in the ministry. They were not ready to take such radical action. My own mother did not understand. I deeply admired, as I'm sure you've gathered over the years, my father, a stalwart, godly man. I called him and asked him to meet with me. We met in Abingdon, Virginia. I still remember the restaurant. It was a wagon wheel restaurant in Abingdon, Virginia. I told him I was about to announce that I was leaving the nomination. He knew something of it. I gave him my biblical reasons. And I said, here's my problem, Dad. You've always taught me to be wise. And I assumed that you meant, and I think you did mean this, that if you're wise, you will avoid a lot of trouble. Things will be better if you're wise and act wisely. I said, but if I do what I think is wise here, Dad, you know I'm going to get in a boatload of trouble. My father, after he had listened, he replied that he believed that I was acting wisely. And he said, John, sometimes acting wisely can get you in a boatload of trouble. And sometimes acting wisely can get you killed. After those encouraging words, he went on to say, if you take this course of action, you will find yourself very much alone. This is just two of us talking. In other words, even in your own family, you're going to be alone. You will not have many friends. This was the last meeting that I had with anyone about this subject until I publicly announced that I was leaving the denomination from the pulpit. And I did find myself very much alone. I found myself in the middle of a firestorm. I literally thought it was going to destroy me. However, God used those two years to mold and change my ministry for the rest of my days. Folks, we live in a culture that's becoming more hostile to Jesus, and that's a way to say it. More hostile to Jesus, more hostile to God's Word, more hostile to the way Christians live, more hostile to us being here, even gathered in worship. Some of our students have already left for the university. 
Some of you might be back for the weekend. Some of you are getting ready to leave. Some of you are in high school and you'll soon be at the university. And I tell you, if you continue to follow Jesus, if you go to the university with Jesus and his word and his gospel in your heart, you're going to find yourself very much alone. It happens right here in our own neighborhood. It doesn't have to go to the university. Father, this has happened several times, but I'm thinking of one instance. A father, very powerful man, came and asked me to intervene in the life of his son. His son was in high school and had become a Christian. This man hated Christianity, hated Christ, thought it was ridiculous. He was insulted that his son would do this. And he said, you need, now he's speaking to a minister. He says, you need to go persuade him to stay away from Christ. This business of Christ being Savior and Lord, you need to go talk to him about it. And I had to ask him, what do you think I believe? Why would I want to do that? But that boy, I I thought about it. That young man, every time he went home, every time he went home, he went home to hostility. He was alone in his own home. Well, it's time to come to the Lord's table. So I will remind you that when that time comes for us, Jesus chose the cross. He chose obedience. That meant he went to the cross and he suffered the ultimate aloneness. He suffered as no man had ever suffered. He took our sins. He took our guilt. And he took our punishment. He took the wrath of the Father. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, dear people. You may suffer aloneness in this fallen world when you follow Jesus. But you'll never suffer the aloneness that Jesus suffered on the cross. He suffered an ultimate aloneness that you never will and that I never will as we trust in Jesus. So after this message, we come. We come to the table. And in repentance, but also in celebration of that cross, we take the bread, the body of Christ. We take the wine, the blood of Christ. And yes, we may suffer in this world. We may suffer for the name of Christ, but we will never suffer that aloneness, the ultimate aloneness. Amen.